Good morning. Well, uh, last week, uh, we were taking a look at uh, what, we, what we found was one of the most common ministry practices of Jesus is that he loved to get together with other people and, and get together with them around the table for a meal. And we found that Jesus greatly uh, desired to, to be with, to befriend, and to save sinners, and that people with questionable pasts, terrible reputations, alienating circumstances, those were all the sort of people that Jesus most often enjoyed spending his time with. And so we looked at and considered what Jesus's intentionality, Jesus's willingness to be with those outcasts, what that might mean for our own lives and how that might lead us to make changes that would bring a greater variety of people to the tables in our lives. This morning, we'll see Jesus uh, still joining yet another party, but it'll be with an entirely different group of people. He'll still have the same hope. He still wants these people to, to learn how to truly live well, to truly live in obedience to, to God and, and live into all that God has for them. But this time, his, his calls for correction are going to be far more clear and, and far more divisive. This time, Jesus is not going to be dealing with, with tax collectors and sinners and people who are, who are known to be the outcasts. This time, he's going to be in the place and at the seats of those who are powerful, those with some influence, and those who are, are, are quite honestly potentially dangerous and skeptical of Jesus and his ministry. Our passage begins with Jesus having arrived at the home of a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were one of the groups of power, who are people who held power over the Jewish people in the first century. The Pharisees believed that Jewish people should strive for a strict and legalistic obedience to God's law. So as they interpreted the word, as they interpreted Torah, as they understood God's law, they felt like they, that all Jews needed to be as closely in alignment with what was said there as possible. However, even with this radical commitment to doing the right thing, they still struggled with sin. The Pharisees chased after influence and power and wealth. They believed in the importance of status, and they avoided contact with anyone that they thought were, were clearly sinners and, and wanted to distance them, themselves from those people because they were afraid of what their reputations, what might happen to their reputations and their standing if they got too close with them. So their worldview, both good and bad, was in constant tension and, 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 and constant tension and conflict with the grace and the freedom and the, and the forgiveness that characterizes the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. And as we study this passage, it's going to be important to keep that context and that conflict in the back of our minds because it helps us put together this picture that something in this dinner party, something in this gathering of people is, is not quite right. Something, something is a little bit off, and we're just not sure why it ends up. Why is Jesus at this table with this group of people at this time? And so again, looking at Luke chapter 14 and verse 1, we see that it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And so as I mentioned last week, there, there were extremely important social dynamics to who you invited to come to your table, who you invited into your home to sit at your table, to join you for a meal. And uh, really the only people you would invite into this sort of a dinner are those that could either maintain or improve your social status. And so anyone included at this meal, the, the Pharisee would have only had an interest in inviting those who kind of fit into the, the social and religious expectations of his group of people, of the Pharisees. So the, the included would be those with, with some wealth, with some power, with some status. The included would be those that agreed with them in these things. Meanwhile, the excluded would be those that might, be dam that might damage 
the reputation and compromise the righteousness of the Pharisees' distinguished guests. And so the sick and the poor and the marginalized all would have been left out and excluded. So from verse 3, we know that the Pharisee and the teachers of the law uh, were were present at this gathering too. And so this was a gathering of, of the wealthy, of the elite, of the influential and then somewhat awkwardly, it's, it's a gathering that Jesus shows up to as well. Jesus is very out of place at this table. He's most certainly not wealthy, and he already has highly, has, is a highly questionable individual in the eyes of the Pharisees. They have clashed over and over again throughout the, the narrative that Luke paints for us already. Jesus is certainly influential, but in all the worst ways and with all the worst people. His followers are fishermen and tax collectors. He has this, this, he's constantly surrounded by the sick and the suffering, and he has this strange, almost scandalous interpretation of the scripture. He keeps, he keeps going to the scriptures and, and kind of changing or, or, or having a different perspective on how they might be interpreted. And the Pharisees just don't know what to do with it, but they're pretty sure they don't like it. And so we're, we're led to this question of what is Jesus doing at this dinner with these people who, who really aren't quite sure that they like him very much? Why was he invited? Well, in verse 1, it says that Jesus was being carefully watched. And what this likely means is that this prominent Pharisee was hoping to be the one who finally caught Jesus in in a compromising, humiliating moment where he's saying something, he's doing something, he's he's doing something that will finally kind of tear his reputation out from under him and the Pharisees can jump on it and and kind of pull the rug out from Jesus' ministry and his mission and and bring an end to what what this man is trying to do at this time. So this is not as much a a dinner party, this is not as much a a fun gathering of of friends as it is, it's a trap, a trap waiting to be sprung. And so perhaps that's why in verse 2, we're told that a man suffering from this abnormal swelling uh, of his body appears at the dinner, or some of your versions might say dropsy, it was this disease where your body retained too much water, and so he had this abnormal swelling, it was painful, It it was suffering, and normally... Such a person would not be allowed anywhere near the dining area of people like the Pharisees. His very presence in that space risked their ceremonial cleanliness and, and their reputations. And yet somehow, the suffering man gets into this room and happens to be right before Jesus. Now, the whole room at this point is watching, and they want to know, what, what is Jesus going to do with this man? The Pharisees absolutely would have tossed him out and probably even sought some sort of punishment for his audacity for, for coming into the space. But at this point, they want to know, how is Jesus going to react? What's he going to do with this person? And, and how might, might they be able to use it to their advantage to bring Jesus' reputation and his influence and his ministry down? So verse 3 says, Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So Jesus begins with this question, is it lawful or not to heal on the Sabbath? And his question only gets in the answer of this, of this terrible, merciless silence from the Pharisees and the other guests. You see, the Pharisees believed that in order to maintain their carefully cultivated righteousness, they needed a strict observance of the Sabbath. This this dinner is happening on the Sabbath day. And so they they, they could do absolutely no work. No no work was allowed if they were going to be in compliance and and, in obedience of the way they interpreted the Sabbath had to be observed. So yes, this man is clearly suffering. 
but they did not feel that his suffering warranted any of their attention and certainly not at the risk of compromising their own righteousness. They were not about to reach out to this man and risk their own standing before God. And so they knew what they interpreted is they needed to keep a distance. They needed to push him away. They needed to be sure he was kept apart. And so they have that in the back of their minds, and they're looking at Jesus' actions now, and they want to know, will he treat this man in the same way? Will he hold the Sabbath as sacred as we believe it has to be held? But Jesus is in no mood to play games with the suffering of others. So he meets the Pharisee's silence, not with words or theological debate, but with undeniable and miraculous action. He turns and takes hold of the man and heals him right before their very eyes. The point of this story is not what is and is not appropriate to do on the Sabbath. Give me one moment here. The point of the story is not what is and is not appropriate on the Sabbath. The point is that we get this picture of Jesus standing between the Pharisees on one side and the suffering man on the other. Standing between a worldview that says you need to protect your influence, you need to protect your status, you need to protect your reputation. And on the other side is this man who just needs someone to have care and compassion and kindness for him. And so the question becomes, is the kingdom of God going to be one that, that favors this status, that favors this influence, or is it going to be one of restoration and kindness and love? And in answer to that question, Jesus reaches out and touches the man in need of a savior. According to the Pharisees, Jesus just compromised his righteousness, right? He's, he's ruined his standing before God. This is the moment where his reputation could fall apart, and Jesus is not bothered by this at all. Because Jesus knows that sometimes it is worth becoming tarnished in the eyes of the world in order to do what is right in the eyes of God. It's worth becoming tarnished in the eyes of the world to do what is right in the eyes of God. See, the Pharisees only wanted Jesus around if he was going to play by their rules and and give them more power and give them more influence and kind of fit into what they thought the world, the way they thought the world should work. They only wanted parties with the right sort of people in attendance, and and they only wanted the righteousness that they could maintain and and build on their own and show off and say, look at all I've done and look at all that I am worth. They only wanted to make sacrifices if they could see the clear benefit to themselves. But Jesus eats with tax collectors, and Jesus spends time with the poor, and he touches those who are hurt and seeks out and spends time with sinners. Jesus is totally unconcerned about being seen with all the wrong sort of people. He's totally unbothered by spending time with with the marginalized and the despised and the neglected. He's constantly sharing his life with people who have questionable morals, terrible theology, people who are in desperate need of grace and good news. Jesus was not burdened by this idea that he had to preserve or build up his own reputation. Jesus came so that he could bring God and people, God and sinners, closer together. And in order to do that, He was willing to sacrifice his own status for the sake of others. And so we are left with the question of, would we do the same for ourselves? Are we willing to sacrifice our own status for the sake of others in order to draw near those who need us to draw near to them? Are we willing to be unconcerned with the world's judgment of our reputation And instead, seek out people who need kindness and compassion and a lovingly shared gospel. Are you willing to give up the pursuit of all that proclaims to the world your status so that you can have more to give to the people that God 
brings into your life. Give me just one moment. I lost power in the first service, so I had to yell a lot. It's coming at me now. <clears throat> but we're good. All right, are you willing to give up those, those status-seeking symbols so that you can draw closer to those who need the love of God? Are you willing to move toward people who are different than you, to, to get into the lives of people who are messy and desperate and, and sacrifice your social standing, even to draw near to those who might embrace different ideologies or have different lifestyles than your own? Are you committed to distancing yourself from the wrong kinds of people and making sure that everyone knows who it is that you are against? Or, or are you committed to seeking out people in genuine love, treating them as your neighbor, treating them as your friend, just as Christ has treated you? Sacrificing our status for the sake of others is not easy, but it is the way of Jesus. We have to see the outcasts. We have to embrace those who suffer. And we must be willing to let go of our status and anything that might stand in our way of drawing near the people that Jesus himself is still seeking on this earth. So this week, I challenge you to spend some time considering whether or not there is anyone in your life that you are intentionally pushing away, creating distance from, keeping at an arm's length because you are concerned what it might look like, what it might do to your own reputation if you were seen spending time with them, sharing life with them, being a part of who, of who they are and, and, and reaching out to them in love. Is there anyone that you're, that you're pushing away, that you're keeping away because you, you are worried about what it might, how the world might interpret who you are and what you believe and what you think just by seeing you with them? If you discover that you're avoiding people in this way, then, then the remedy is, is a simple one, although it is not easy. You look at the story and you say, I will do just as Christ did. I will sacrifice my status for the sake of drawing near to others. I will reach out and connect with those in need. I will give them my attention, my compassion. And most importantly, I will be genuine in my love for who they are. If the Pharisees had hoped to expose Jesus as a fraud, that plan just blew up in their faces. It's pretty hard to argue with the results of a very sick man all of a sudden miraculously being made well at no more than a touch. And then in verse 7, Jesus turns the tables. We find that just as he was being closely watched, he had been watching these party goers as well. And now he has a few things that he'd like to say to them. In verse 7, it says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. <clears throat> when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both you who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. <clears throat> so this style 
of dinner, this style of dinner party that, that Luke is describing here was known as a symposium. And you had a specific room where the couches were brought in and they're brought in around a central table. And then each of those couches actually had specific assignments for those, depending on whether you were the most honored guest or the least honored guest. And so the most honored guest would get the, would get the seat at the, at the best table and everyone was able to see him. And the least honored guest was kind of off to the side. And, and, and so what Jesus is describing is he's seeing these Pharisees all kind of jockey for position and try to figure out how could they sit in the place that bestows upon them the most honor just by picking it out. And it's not hard to imagine Jesus is kind of wandering into the room and like finding the lowest table and the lowest couch and being like, yeah, this works for me. And, and, and sitting down and watching this whole thing play out in front of him. And then as these Pharisees finally, finally sit and kind of measure up and see how they did compared to those others in the room, Jesus speaks up and he says, I have something that I'd, I'd like to share with you all. And he tells this parable. Now, the fact that it's a parable, meaning it's a simple story mean, used to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson, the fact that it's a parable lets us know that Jesus is not really here to give tips on how to arrange your weddings or, or how to make sure that you get the best honor in the room of any room you enter into. He wanted these Pharisees, he wanted these leaders of people, these influential men to understand that there is something far more important than protecting their own prestige. There is a futility in living a life focused on your own glorification. Jesus makes this clear when he says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Seeking one's own self-interest is self-defeating. This is something that God has always decreed, always tried to teach his people, always wanted to get people to understand. The pursuit of your own glory is ultimately pointless. Being impressive to others is a hollow, meaningless goal. Instead, Jesus reminds us that we should sacrifice our status in order that we might willingly choose humility should sacrifice our status in order that we might be the kind of people who willingly choose to live with humility. We, are, we live in a culture, we are a culture that loves to celebrate the proud. We want our leaders to be the strongest, the, lo- the loudest, the toughest people in the room. We are all too often willing to overlook character flaws or sweep accusations under the rug if it means that our favorite author, our favorite performer, our favorite preacher, our favorite political candidate, any of them can maintain this image of being the best and we can be among them in being the best. We draw confidence from being a follower of those with the biggest following and we crave that same greatness. We despise those who threaten our position in moving up the ladder. But the kingdom of God has no regard for our self-centered reputations. It is our hearts that will be examined. And it is our humility that will help us become the kind of people God most wants us to be. God is not impressed with our accomplishments. God is never in awe of how high we climb or how successful we become. The love of God is never, ever stirred up by our superiority. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The early church took this proverb to heart. God opposes the proud, but but shows favor to the humble. You find it in James, you find it in Peter, you find it throughout the letters of Paul. They knew this to be true, and they lived it out in the lives and the churches that they built. We are not called to be the best of the best. 
We are called to be humble. And then from that place of humility, trust that God will put us in the place of honor where we need to be. We give that all over to God and stop worrying about it for ourselves. Instead, we sacrifice our status and put that concern far away from us and instead embrace a life of humility that allows us to embrace the lives of others around us as well. Jesus is not quite done after he tells this parable. He then turns to his host and has a specific word for the host as well, and he takes up issue with the, with the guests and specifically who's left off the guest list of this party. In verse 12, Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and then you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So in these final verses, Jesus goes head to head with this Greco-Roman cultural value that was known as reciprocity. Things like hospitality and gift giving and favors, uh, they, they weren't actually matters of generosity. What they saw them as was a transaction um, that, that, that demanded something be brought back in return. So if you went over to your neighbor's house and asked for a cup of sugar, they would give it to you with the expectation that you would later return it, plus some sort of interest, plus some sort of benefit to them for them having been gracious to you. If you invited people over to your dinner, you only did so with the expectation that those you invited would then return that invitation so that you could be the person who got a chance to be sitting in the seat of honor. You could be the person who was, who was doted upon and given lavish food and lavish drink and able to enjoy yourself at their party. And the whole, system, the whole Roman Empire thrived with this undercurrent of reciprocity is the way that the world works. And that all sounds fine until you consider who would be left out of this sort of exchange. If you only ever give to those who have something to give back to you, then you are never going to extend hospitality to the people that need it the most. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the people most in need of your kindness and your care are the people that are left out of this equation. If your generosity is contingent upon the potential for reciprocity, then you are just exploiting the idea of hospitality for your own selfish gain. Right? If your generosity is contingent upon this idea of recipro- reciprocity, upon the potential of receiving back from somebody something else, then you are not really being hospitable. You are pretending to be, and it is a sham. And that is the sort of thing that will not cut it in the kingdom of God. If you only give on the basis of what you can get back, then you are actually focused on yourself and your position and your status. And Jesus gives a sobering warning to the prominent Pharisee surrounded by his well-to-do and highly influential friends. He says, sacrifice your status so that you will be blessed. But the underlying message there, the point of sacrificing your status so that you will be blessed, is that right now, in the immediate, that blessing's probably not happening. If you're willing to, to make your generosity be about other people, if you're willing to extend yourself in this way, then you're not worried about what's going to come back to you in this moment. What, what Jesus says is that you can trust God to be good to you in the moment where it matters most at the resurrection of the righteous. You can trust God that, that what your, your repayment, what you really need will be when it matters the most when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom here on the earth. Until that point, you can be someone who is generous in an authentic way, actually giving to people who need it the most without expectation of being, having anything given back in return. And so we can ask, our, ask ourselves, how might we be blessings to someone this week that we know cannot return that blessing back to us? 
How might we be willing to be generous to those who cannot be generous to us in return? Or at least not in, not in a way that, that either rises up to the same level or extends that generosity beyond what we gave to them. How might you prepare your heart to be this sort of a person, to desire to give things away with no intention of receiving back and instead trusting that God has your reward well in hand and so you can give freely without any concern? Don't meet Christ's command to sacrifice your status with a wary, unsure, and self-interested silence. Don't imitate the Pharisees in this passage and just get quiet. When, when challenged with something hard. Reach out and help someone in need. Choose to live humbly. Give generously, especially to those who cannot give anything back. Follow not only the words of Jesus, but his example as well. Because from the cross, that's where Jesus reached out and touched us and saved us in our moment of greatest need. From the cross, Jesus chose humility and humiliation of death so that we might live. And from the cross, he gave us forgiveness and salvation, and he gave it to us, a people who could never possibly ever dream of repaying him back. Sacrifice your status, just as Jesus sacrificed everything for you. Would you please pray with me?